Long ignored by science, this powerful emotion proves to have benefits for the mind, body, and spirit. Prepare to find all in this episode of Live Happy Now. The ancient Greeks defined happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. To think about positive psychology, it's a science, and it's actually younger than the Internet, believe it or not. The reality is that social connection is, in the research, the greatest predictor we have of long-term happiness. You have some factors in your control that can promote the health and resilience and growth of your absolutely most important asset, which is your brain. And so it all comes down to understanding ourselves. There's a way for all of us to succeed, but, but it might take different things. We're all looking for the same thing, and that's a way to bring a little bit more joy to our day. Join us as we look at the many different paths that lead us to that happy place. This is Live Happy Now. Hello and greetings and welcome to another edition of the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston, and I'm thrilled to have you here wherever you are in the world. However you may be tuning in, we thank you for making us a part of your day. We're also very thrilled to make a huge announcement regarding Live Happy. Over the past two years, you've been tuning into this podcast each and every week to hear the latest in positive psychology news and hear from the leading experts in the field, as well as folks who have made happiness journeys of their own. And Thanks to you doing so, some people in high places took notice, namely CBS Radio, right here in Dallas, Texas, where Live Happy Magazine is based. They came to us after listening to the podcast and suggested that we do a radio show. So, this week, we're going to... Coming up on Sunday morning, June 4th, we will be launching Live Happy Radio at 8 o'clock Central Time on 98.7 K-Love in Dallas, Texas. Now, if you're not in Dallas, Texas, which I assume most of you are not, don't worry. You can tune in as well. All you have to do is go to radio.com and click on 98.7 K-Love or search it K-L-U-V and click on the 98.7 banner when it comes up. Again, we start at 8 o'clock Central Time, so that's 9 o'clock on the coast, that's That's 7 o'clock in the mountains and 6 o'clock on the Pacific Coast. But we hope you're tuning in wherever because you're going to hear some of the interviews that have been a part of our podcast for a long time. Plus, we'll be sharing new information on ideas on positive psychology and letting you know about some people that are taking happiness out into the world. So again, join us Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock Central on 98.7 K-Love in Dallas or on Radio.com. Search K-L-U-V. Now, on to this week's edition of the podcast. As awesome as that is, we feel like this podcast is going to bring you awe as well. That's what we're talking about. Awe is defined as the positive emotion one experiences when confronting a vast stimulus that can't be accounted for with one's current understanding. Lonnie Shiota has a PhD from Cal Berkeley, and she established the Shiota Psychophysiology Laboratory for Effective Testing, or SPLAT Lab, which studies human emotions, relationships, and awe. Live Happy Science editor Paula Phelps expands on her article in the latest issue of Live Happy magazine with an interview on finding awe in every moment. Well, Lonnie, I am so glad that you're able to join us today because you are one of the people who was studying awe long before awe was cool. (laughs) Um, And I I think it's so great to be able to go talk to somebody who is kind of on the cusp of the movement before it was a movement. So I guess to begin, can you tell us how you became interested in it and, and why you started studying it? So that's a great question. Thanks so much, Paula, and thanks for inviting me to do this today. Uh, it's a really a, a combination of, of 
converging interests for my background and some and some very very good luck that got thrown into it so um, as a high school student I was seriously considering a career in the performing arts I was trained as a singer as a dancer and as an actress I was actually explicitly trained as a triple threat and was and was thinking about um, moving into that as a career I ultimately decided not to go down that road uh, in terms of professional training, but the arts have remained a very, very important part of my life. And one of the reasons, one of many reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we engage in the arts uh, and experience the arts and expose ourselves to them is to have this experience of awe. So flash forward for several years, I go to college, I, I begin the doctoral program in psychology at UC Berkeley, working with Dr. Keltner, who was my, my mentor in grad school, and I'm studying emotion, and I'm really shocked to learn that despite the burgeoning research on emotion, um, primarily negative emotions, but increasingly about positive emotions as well, literally nobody was studying on. and I mean nobody. I did a literature <laughs> search at one point, and there was not a single empirical paper that wasn't coming primarily from a psychodynamic perspective, right, a Freudian perspective on this. Nobody was really doing basic research on what awe is or what it does, and I was just flabbergasted. My advisor, Dr. Keltner, it turned out had written in collaboration with Jonathan Haidt, a colleague of his, um, a theoretical paper on awe that provided a very strong conceptual foundation to start doing research from. So I'm deeply indebted to both of them for providing that starting point. And that paper was really a, that's a seminal paper in the modern study of awe. And had that been published at that time, or was it still in the works? Or where, where in the, the calendar was your interest? That paper was published while I was in graduate school. Okay, terrific. So you, so that's why, like, you really, as we have talked before, you know, you were really at the beginning of this movement. And I guess what, what popped into my head as you were talking, you associated things like the arts with awe. And, again, awe wasn't a word that was being tossed around. So how is it in your brain that that connection was made, that you knew awe was something that was influenced by the arts? Boy, this is, it's a little bit of a tough question, and it's a great one. Um, I suppose it was an intuitive connection. I mean, when we go through our life experiencing emotions, we're experiencing some form of emotion a lot of the time. And just as we learn any other concept, we learn both from similarities in our own experience, from this experience to this experience and this experience, and then also from the language that other people are using around us, what things feel like they go together. And there was something about the feeling of seeing a, a new and remarkable piece of art that was just very similar to seeing the view from a mountaintop at the end of a hike for the first time or seeing or looking out the window from from the high floor on a building and seeing the night sky or looking at a sunset or looking up at the stars there stars there was this similarity to to what that was like and what it made you do and and even the words that we use for them wow you know um 
that was intuitively very real for me. And so I sort of walked into the research on awe with this sense that there was a commonality in across these experiences. And in the first study that we did on awe, one of the first things that we did, of course, was just ask people. We didn't even give them the definition. We just said, can you tell us about a time when you felt very strong awe? And it turned out that these were the kinds of things that people named. They were, they were seeing certain artistic performances. It could be music. It could be paintings for the first time. Uh, panoramic nature views were the most common stimulus that people re- reported. Night skies, sunsets, um, very, very big, vast things, as Keltner and Haidt had predicted. Um, great works of architecture like the Notre Dame and the Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in human actions that were extraordinary, really beyond our ordinary experience and beyond our understanding of what the human body and human behavior are capable of. So that must have been really frightening and exhilarating to be studying something that at that time you really didn't know if people were going to jump on the bandwagon. Oh, You yeah, didn't know no. if they were going to care. So how, why was that so important for you to take on an area of study that, that we didn't know was going to turn into to such sure. an interest today? Sure. It's a great question. I mean, Dacker really raised concerns about that. This is You don't know how this is going to go. People really think of this awe thing as flaky. That's why no one's really doing it. Um, and he gave really good advice, which is uh, similar to some advice that I give graduate students now who are interested in going into a completely new area, which is go ahead and do that, but do other stuff that's safer too, right? So, and ideally tie this very new, controversial, outside-the-box thing to something that's closer to what people are doing right now. So one of the things that we did was started and a very specific program of research on discrete positive emotions that says rather than lumping different present emotions such as pride and love and joy and awe and amusement all into the same bin and assuming that it's one thing, right, that the one mm-hmm. monolithic thing and that all positive emotions have the same effect on us, asking the question, well, are there actually distinct positive emotions that may have somewhat different effects? And we were able to do that, and there was a strong methodological background for asking those kinds of questions, pretty accepted ways that you ask those kinds of questions and answer them with data. And then we were able to include awe as one of those emotions. Oh, And much of my original work on awe was in that context of, well, let's compare awe with these other things. And lo and behold, it just kept emerging as different over and over and over again. The way it's expressed in the face, uh, its implications for cognitive processing, the way it looks in the body are all really notably distinct from other positive emotions. Yeah, and, and you bring up, that's a great point. We talked about this for the story about how our faces register awe differently than other positive emotions. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk about that? Because that's something that I found is really interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that. Absolutely. So um, in, in the, much of the original research on facial expressions of emotion um, that had a resurgence in the late 60s and the 70s and then into the 80s that was spearheaded by Paul Ekman and also by Cal Azard, um, 
included many many people think of there being six basic emotions, right? And there's this list. And and the reason for that list is those are the emotional expressions that were included in Paul Ekman's original studies. So they're fear, anger, sadness, disgust, surprise, and happiness. And the only one of those that's arguably really positive is happiness. And, and that is displayed through what's called a Duchenne smile. So that's a smile where the lip corners turn up and what we think of as being a mouth smile. But there's mm-hmm. also an eye smile where the muscles around, the big muscles around the eyes, they're called the orbicularis oculi muscles, contract as well. And when those are contracted, it lifts your cheek muscles a little bit. Um, you might see some crow's feet. The eyes might narrow a little bit. It's a very distinctive combination that we perceive as being a very strong smile. Um, at the time, and for many years, that was considered the expression of positive emotions. What my colleagues Belinda Campos and Dacher Keltner and others and I found in a study where we actually asked people to pose expressions of several different positive emotions after describing an experience where they actually felt that emotion so they could kind of generate a little echo of it in themselves. But most positive emotion expressions do indeed involve a Duchenne smile. Many of them are accompanied by other what we call action units as well. So there would be additional facial or postural movements that are distinctive for that emotion. But all was really different. It actually doesn't include a smile at all. And the prototypical expression of awe that our participants showed us involved a, a raising, a gentle raising of the inner eyebrows. The eyes get wider. People's mouth often drops open, and they lean forward. And their face is relaxed, but they're not smiling. Mm-hmm. And that was we saw that something along those lines in about 70% of the participants who were asked to first remember and then to, to remember an experience of awe and then to pose it for us. That's very interesting. And, you know, it's as you've seen the last 14 years, the interest in awe has changed, and it's, it's especially right now people really seem interested in it. And can you explain why so many people are jumping on it? Is it because it <laughs> has been overlooked, or why is there such a, a huge interest in awe right now? Yeah, it's a great reason. I think, it's, again, it's sort of the convergence of, of factors. Um, that 2003, I think, publication by Keltner and Height laid a theoretical foundation, which is really important for starting any kind of work on a new emotion construct. I think having one paper out there, that first one that we did, that we just sort of said, well, all right, let's jump in and figure out a way <laughs> to do this. See if anyone this. wants this. Um, <laughs> see if anybody wants this and you know, managed to get it published, thank goodness. Um, again, just provided something for people to start with, to ask, to, to ask these questions and have something to reference as a basis for generating new hypotheses, new predictions for research findings. So that was certainly helpful. Um, funding is really important. Right, and and a major factor in the burst of research on awe that's been published in the last five years is due to the John Templeton Foundation, who issued a request for proposals for research on awe. And I was uh, lucky enough to receive one of those grants, and several other really talented uh, emotion researcher colleagues uh, received those grants as well. And the publications that you're seeing um, are. Are, are the result of the work that was supported by that um, by that burst of funding, and you know this really highlights just how important support 
financial support is Mm -hmm. for basic science. I'm grateful to foundations like the John Templeton Foundation who are jumping in on this and really helping to get work done. Um, But it can't replace public funding for basic behavioral science. Foundations have certain kinds of questions that they're interested in supporting based upon their individual foci and mandates, and that's fine, and that's a great thing, but that can't replace public and governmental investment in understanding how the human mind works and understanding how human behavior works, because once we have that knowledge, there's so much that you can do with it, but there's really a lot of work that we as researchers simply can't do unless we have some support. And in this case, that support really helped to create an entire new research area. Well, and, and can you explain why it's important? Like, why is all important for us to experience, and why is it important for us to understand how to experience it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I think we're still learning that. I I can't give a definitive answer to that right now because we don't really know, and that's why so much more science is needed. I will tell you why I think it's important. And why I think it's important comes down to uh, a couple of factors. One is the capacity to experience awe appears to be universal. And I say that because around the world, cultures do things, they create objects, they engage in rituals that have properties that we now know elicit awe. And any time I I am coming at my research from the perspective of an evolutionary psychologist, which that term carries a lot of baggage and it always makes me (laughs) nervous, but for me what it really means is that I recognize that the human mind and the way that it processes information and generates behavior is influenced by evolutionary processes, right, as, as, as learned algorithms for how we respond to stimuli in the environment. And it, it's nothing darker than that <laughs> and, or, more, or more insidious than that. That's really just what it is. And, and you, but when you're coming at that, you, you ask certain kinds of questions about behavior. And one of those is anytime you see something that is as universal as the capacity for awe seems to be, you have to ask, is this an evolved capacity? And or is it simply a reflection of some other capacity that is triggered by the environment? But in either, in either case, if we've got a universal capacity to respond to something like the stars in this very species-specific way, or if we all sort of feel this um, response to extraordinarily large and elaborately designed buildings, for example, or highly rhythmic and systematic um, movements that, that we call dance, or music that has these very elaborate patterns, what is, what is our response to those things doing for us? And you start asking those kinds of questions and generating hypotheses about what it is. What's this doing for us? What, what benefit does this response that we have, this awe response that we have, uh, provide us with? 
and we don't necessarily ever know that for certain. It's not about proving or disproving a certain cause or a certain benefit. But what having hypotheses about that benefit does or theories about that benefit does is say, okay, if that's true, then we should see this as a very distinctive mm-hmm. consequence of experiencing law. And that's how I've approached my own work. So there are many possible answers to that question. And in fact, Dacher Keltner and I have somewhat different answers to that question. Oh, interesting. It's not, it, it's not even a, a right or wrong thing. There's a really good chance that we're both right, actually. Um, and that often comes up in, in evolutionary processes. So he tends to focus more on the social implications of awe and the role that awe can play in supporting powerful individuals using awe-inspiring awe, uh, awe experiences to get buy-in from their community for their leadership. I have tended to focus more on cognitive implications of awe and what it does for how we process information from the world around us. And we've each found support for for the functions that we're that we're most interested in, and that's how science moves forward, right? We're just we're sort of using these initial theories to collect data right now, and then you come back and you look at all the data and go, okay, where are we? Okay, do we need to yeah. modify the theories? Do we need new theories? Okay, let's go collect some more data, and it's an iterative process that takes time, but is really worth that investment. And then, and then for the individual, you know, the the layman who's out there. Why is it for, important for us to understand all? You know, I, I was at a, a, the symphony the other night, and it was, uh, they were playing Brahms and Radiohead and a mashup, which was just an amazing, mind-blowing experience. But I don't think most people walked out and said, I'm in awe of that, even though the look on their faces was pretty much, wow. Um, so, sure. so why is it important for us to be able to recognize awe and to, to know that that's what we're experiencing and 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 know how to look at at awesome experiences. I think it's important that we have awe-inspiring experiences. Um, I, I don't. I'm I'm a little mixed on how important it is that people label them as such. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's when we have labels for emotions, it helps us to communicate with other people about them, and maybe sometimes helps us to analyze them ourselves. Um, but at a minimum. Having them is very important. I know I'm I'm I turned 45 this year, and you know awe experiences are are common in children. Um, and the theory that that I work from is that really the function that I'm most interested in of awe is the one where it stops us. It puts a break on what we're doing and what we're thinking and focuses our attention out toward the environment to something new, to something we haven't seen or heard before, or even if we have seen or heard it, we don't fully understand it. It it represents the unknown to us in some way. And awe helps us to focus our attention on it and then take that information in somewhat automatically, and we have uh, multiple lines of studies indicating that, um, indeed, when people are in an awe state, they seem to back off from the sort of automatic, heuristic, rule-of-thumb-driven ways of processing the world around us that we otherwise tend to use a lot of the time. That robotic response? That sort of yeah, that sort of automatic response, and that includes things like um, 
it includes things like when you're listening to a commercial, are you easily swayed by the fact that everybody in the commercial seems really happy? Mm-hmm. Or do you look at it and go, wait a second, <laughs> you know, people being really happy doesn't seem to have anything to do with that product that they're consuming. We have um, a, a great line of studies that was uh, led by my my colleague um, and a former graduate student here at Arizona State, Vlad Grishkevichis, where he uh, used a number of techniques, we replicated this in multiple studies, to elicit different positive emotions in our participants. We either showed them, uh, had them read a story that elicited the emotion or had them remember a personal experience, but everybody was randomly assigned to experience a different emotion, and some, of those, and some people were randomly assigned to experience awe. And then these were all ASU undergraduates, so we asked them to read a supposed newspaper story where they were, where an argument was made for instituting a new policy at ASU where students would have to take a comprehensive oral exam in order to graduate. <laughs> and of course, these are college undergrads. They hate that idea. That's a terrible idea. Worst so idea they, ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> So if they agree with this at the end of the study, we can reasonably infer that they've been persuaded. Right. The trick was that half of the participants in each of the emotion conditions read a lengthy article trying to persuade them that included several kind of boneheaded arguments for this. Things like, well, the president's daughter thinks it's a great idea. Here's what the president's daughter thinks. But in many cases, if people aren't thinking too carefully about the quality of the argument, they'll just see that it's a long argument with a lot of details. And they'll go, sure, that sounds great to me. The other half of the participants read an article of the same length that included the same number of arguments, but they were really good arguments. Things like universities that have this requirement tend to produce graduates who are have, show, uh, have higher rates of getting a job and have higher salaries after they graduate. So that's actually a pretty good argument. Right. So if someone's not really paying attention, the difference between the good argument and the bad argument doesn't really matter. They're just seeing nine arguments and going, sure, sounds good. But if they're really critically analyzing these, then they should be persuaded by the good arguments but not by the bad ones, right? Mm-hmm. What we saw is that in most of the positive emotion conditions, and this is consistent with quite a bit of prior research, relative to a neutral condition, people were sort of indifferent to the quality of the arguments. They were pretty easily convinced by both of the persuasive articles, presumably just because there were lots of arguments. But in the awe condition, people were very sensitive to whether this was a good argument or a bad argument, much more so than in the neutral control condition. So the participants who had read a bad argument were not convinced at all. And those who had read a good quality argument were, were quite convinced that this was a good plan. So in awe, people seemed to be more responsive to the quality of the argument that they were reading and, and thinking about it more critically. So, so basically, if a if a wife wants a new car, <laughs> she needs and she wants to discuss this with her spouse. She needs to first have them read <laughs> and get in a state of awe. Is that uh, is that well, what we need so to do? That's a good. So, if she has a really good set of reasons, because if she doesn't have a good set of reasons, 
and the person she's trying to convince is in an off state, he might pick up on that even better. Well, that's mm-hmm. not a very good reason, right? There's, <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily mean that awe either makes you more convincible or that it makes you more, more critical in the sense of being more negative. But these studies suggested that people are more attuned to the quality of the information out there in the environment. Interesting. And not so much stuck in their heads. That's yeah, so it can pretty much affect our performance then. Right. And and our rational thinking. Right. So are are you up for another example of this? Um sure, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this is the paper that I sent you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I got that. Yeah, so in, in a new set of studies with my current graduate student, Alex Danvers, we asked a, a, another question that's, again, about how much do we filter our experience of the environment through what we think we already know through shortcuts, which is, I think, really a lot of what the effects of awe and cognition come down to is, you know, we walk through the world and we're, we're really filtering out information that we don't feel like we need right now or that we think we already understand. Think about when you're driving to work. How much attention are you actually paying to what's around you unless something unexpected happens and it looks like somebody's about to hit your car or you're about to hit somebody else? You're kind of on autopilot a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. The truth is we go through our world very much in that state. We have to. We've spent, by the time we reach middle adulthood, we've spent... Um, decades, storing knowledge, building up an understanding of the world around us and how to operate in it and what things mean. And that serves a very important purpose. It allows us to move through the world efficiently. But in doing that, we're filtering our experiencing a lot of the time and putting people and experiences and objects and events into categories and going, okay, this goes in that category. I'm just going to assume this is this is the same as everything, all the other experiences I've had in that category and not worry about it. Here's where Oz is a little bit different. I think it actually helps remove that filter. Because is that and something we do automatically? Like we don't even realize we're just we don't throwing even realize we're things into silos and, and ignoring them. We are completely unaware that we're doing this most of the time. It's an, it's an, automatic, it's an automatic process. Um, and in fact, the more... For example, people are more likely to do this if, if, you, if you speed them up, if you put them under time pressure or they're trying to do multiple tasks at the same time. They're more likely to use these kinds of filters and shortcuts in processing experience. So it's very automatic, sort of what kicks in when you don't have time to think. Mm-hmm. So Alex Danvers and I did a series of studies where we manipulated people's emotion state, again, through things like photographs and relived personal experiences. And in each study, one of the conditions was awe. And after the emotion manipulation, completely separate from the emotion manipulation, but right afterwards, we asked participants to listen to a five-minute audio story about a couple going out to a romantic dinner. And the thing is, as soon as I say the words romantic dinner, People have an image in their heads that pops up, right? You know, it's a, it's a nice restaurant. Maybe it's Italian. It's a little dark inside. There are candles on the table. She's probably wearing a dress, right? There's this whole, we call it an event script that we have 
for a category of experiences that tells us what to expect with that kind of experience. If you know you're going out to, or if you think that you're going out to a romantic dinner with someone, you have a certain set of expectations for what's going to happen that evening. Sure. If those ex- expectations are violated, you might not be very happy about the situation. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, that, but that doesn't mean that we're thinking about that all the time. It just means that as soon as that category is activated, there are a bunch of assumptions that you make. Mm-hmm. What was important about this study is that inc- it included a lot of details. And after listening to the story, we asked participants to complete a series of true-false questions where we said, was this in the story, yes or no? Was this in the story, yes or no? And some of the things that we were asking about had indeed been mentioned in the story. Others had not. And some of the pieces of information that we asked about were very script consistent. It's what in previous research and pilot research we had established people assume will be there in a romantic dinner. So an example would be, you know, we ask, was there a candle on the table in the story? And sure, there should be. But in fact, there was no mention of that in the story. Nothing was ever said about, about there being a candle on the table in the story. So if people are filtering their experience and memory of this story through their script for a romantic dinner, they should answer yes. They should say, yeah, there was totally a candle on the table because they're expecting for there to be a candle on the table. And their mind had populated the story with that information. We found, what we found is that in an awe condition, people were less likely to make that mistake. So they've experienced it for what it is versus what? For what it is. Okay. What it should be. Exactly. They were less likely to import information from their event scripts into their memory of the story that wasn't there in the story itself. Very interesting. Our minds uh, do some amazing things, don't they? (laughs) <laughs> they really do, and we're not aware of a lot of it. Yeah, <laughs> well, let me ask you, having, you. Sure, sure, sure. You, you've given us so much to work with here and so much to think about, and how can the people listening to you today, how can we use awe to improve our lives, to, to find greater joy and, and live a fuller life? What are some ways that, that we can act, tap into the awe that we might have That's, overlooked? Sure, sure, sure. It's a, it's a great question. Um, So I think there's the why and then the how to that. The why is looking across the work that we've done. Awe seems to put the brake on on sort of cognitive processes that are chugging along. So it's a a nice way to just give your mind a little break uh, from the daily routine, from your daily problems. People report in an awe state that they kind of, forget about and stop thinking about their personal concerns and problems. Um, It seems to slow the body down. We found that it reduces fight-flight influence Mm -hmm. on the heart's function. So it's physically relaxing in that sense. Um, People certainly experience it as calming and relaxing. So that can be very useful, and it may have this effect where it helps us to see the world with new eyes. Um, which is which is really precious uh, at, at, at the point in life where that's not happening to you every day. So that's the why. 
the how is very personal. Um, we experience awe when we encounter something that for us is unknown or makes us think about the unknown. But because we all know different things, we all can be, um, all can be evoked from all of us in different ways. There are certain kinds of experiences like seeing the Grand Canyon that mm-hmm. for most people are going to be awe-inspiring. But, of course, you can't go to the Grand Canyon every day. Right. Um, there are certainly photographs we've found in the lab that photographs uh, of extraordinary views can be awe-inspiring if you take the time to look at them. Um, music can certainly be awe-inspiring, especially novel, complex, um, thematically rich music. Artistic experiences that are complicated, um, that are new, that, that, or even just that communicate something about the human experience that you hadn't thought of before can be awe-inspiring as well. So um, is it really a, just a personal thing? Like certain people are going to react to different stimuli? To some extent. I mean, we've certainly found some common factors. The panoramic nature of view, the view from a high place, seems to be something that, that sort of presses this button for most people. Okay. But beyond that, it's worth taking the time to think about what it is for you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something expensive or, or far away. Sometimes it's just a question of looking at what's around you with fresh eyes and, again, sort of making the decision to remove your own filters of, yeah, that's just another tree. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so you can even child. in your own backyard find exactly. find uh, find some awe. Exactly. exactly. That's just another flower. Well, it's not. Look at it closely and, and see how it is different and what about it surprises you and what about it weren't you expecting. That's terrific. Well, Lana, you've given us so much to absorb today, <laughs> a lot to think about. Uh, I know you tell us more in the new issue of Live Happy, so they'll be able to pick that up and uh, read a little bit more about what you've done and what other researchers are doing with awe. For more about embracing awe, pick up a copy of the current issue of Live Happy magazine, and for a free sketch note of this episode, visit livehappynow.com. Well, that's going to do it for this podcast, but don't forget, if you're listening the week this launches, coming up on June 4th is the launch of Live Happy Radio, 8 a.m. Central Daylight Time on 98.7 K-Love in Dallas, or worldwide on radio.com. Search K-L-U-V and click on 98.7 K-Love. You'll be able to tune in then. We'd also like to hear from you. You can send us your reactions to this episode or ideas for the podcast or the radio show or the magazine or anything else. Find us on Twitter at LiveHappy, Facebook.com slash LiveHappy, or an email podcast at LiveHappy.com. For all of us at Live Happy Magazine, Live Happy Now, and Live Happy Radio, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and thank you for helping us to live happy.